Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again as I do my favorite thing, which is talk to some incredible experts about all the amazing things that they know that I don't know and that you probably don't know either. My mind's going to be blown. Your mind's going to be blown. We're all going to have a great time together. That has been my intro for the show for the last couple of weeks. Is it getting a little rote? Are you, are you bored of the intro? Send me an email, by the way. If you ever want to ever wanna talk to me about the show, you can always send me an email at factually at adamconover.net. Give me your suggestions, what you'd like to hear in the future. I always love to hear from you. But look, let's talk about this week's show. Uh, I, I'll be honest, as I'm recording this right now, I'm a little exhausted. I just got back from a whirlwind week of travel. I was shooting segments for my new show, The G Word, which is going to come out on Netflix next year. It's all about how uh, the federal government works. We interview some incredible people, go do some amazing things. I'm under NDA, so I can't talk about any of it, but uh, suffice it to say, I did not sleep a lot, and we got some amazing footage, and I cannot wait for you to see this show when it comes out, hopefully in early 2022, before too long. But look, uh, beyond that, there's a lot of horrible stuff going on in the world right now. So let's talk about a topic that is a little bit uh, lighter, more effervescent, a little bit uh, moister this week. This week, we are going to talk about sweat. That's right, the salty, wet stuff that you excrete from uh, your entire body, if you're me, uh, at basically all times. <laughs> I know, it seems like an odd topic for a podcast episode, but let me tell you something. At the end of this interview, I think you will be convinced that sweat is not just very fascinating, it is the very thing that makes us human. That's right, not only is sweat almost unique to humans in the animal kingdom. We're one of the very few species that do it across our whole bodies, giving us an evolutionary advantage that other animals simply don't have, which we'll get into in the interview. It also conveys information about us on a staggering scale. That's right. You're worried about social media leaking your private data. You might want to worry about your sweat doing the same thing. But look, instead of trying to explain it myself, why don't we just get to this interview? My guest today is Sarah Everts. She's an award-winning science journalist, and she's the author of a new book called The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. I think you're going to be completely fascinated by this interview. I know I was. So let's get right to it. Please welcome Sarah Everts. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, it's great to be here. So you've written uh, an entire book on sweat. Um, the, the book, are, are the pages of this book moist? Is that, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's a gross place to start, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. It's a book full of sweat. We're like 30 seconds in and you're already TMI. Um, yeah, it's full of sweat, but like not literal, literal damp. It, it's not moist. The book is not moist. Um, okay. Well, uh, well, t- tell me what brought you to write this book. I mean, what is so fascinating about sweat? Well, so I think like a lot of people, I'm a little bit mortified by my own sweat. I, I kind of went through life worrying that I might sweat too much. Um, like I'm the kind of person that, you know, when I'm doing a, a workout, I, I'm grabbing my towel during the warm up or like during mm-hmm. hot yoga. I'm like looking around to see if anybody else is dripping on their mat when I should be focusing on my downward dog and being Zen. 
Um, and yet, as a science journalist, I, I, I always knew that evolutionary biologists count sweating as one of our superpowers. Um, mm. One of the things that make humans unique in the animal kingdom, along with big brains and, and nakedness. Um, and so I thought, okay, I, I need to find some serenity rather than shame in all the sweating <laughs> that I certainly do. <laughs> so our, our superpowers are big brains, nakedness, and sweat. That we are we are smooth, we are wet, and we <laughs> overthink it. Is that that sounds like a pretty good description of humanity to me, but it's also I don't know if that's a picture that is really it really seems like all of these all of these slippery beings sort of sliding around the plains or whatever. Doesn't doesn't sound that evolutionary evolutionarily advantageous. So why is it? Well, that's the funny thing is because being naked is actually part and parcel to why sweating is also our superpower. So in the animal kingdom, we are actually inordinately good at cooling down. Mm. And that's because um, we have millions of sweat glands between two and five. I got mine counted. I have three since we're three million, not three. <laughs> you have three uh, million sweat glands. I have three, three million. Someone went through, someone went over your whole body and counted up your sweat glands one by one. They got to three million. Uh, they did it in a kind of uh, a weirder way that involves dental polymer, you know, the stuff that they use to like take impressions of teeth and mild electrocution. But, you know, we, we can get to that now or, or later. Okay, no, that's all right. That's fine. That's enough of a description. <laughs> okay, so uh, we sweat primarily to cool down, and that's because uh, our body heat effectively evaporates um, the water that is coming out of our sweat glands and takes our heat, whisks it from our bodies uh, into the atmosphere. And we kind of need to do this because like death by heat stroke is a terrible way to go. And we're really efficient at it in part because we're naked. So if you think about a dog, the way that they cool down is by evaporating the water out of saliva off their tongue, which is like literally the only naked part of their body, but it's a tiny little bit of real estate to cool down their whole body. Yeah. Um, yet we have all the parts, like we are naked. And so we can evaporate off of our entire um, body and as such are super efficient, which gives us this sneaky trick where we can exercise and cool down simultaneously. So we can run uh, marathons, right? Because yeah. we don't actually have to stop running. Well, some of us do, but in the heaty days of our evolution, you can imagine that, you know, most of our prey ran a lot faster than we do. They, they mm -hmm. sprinted away, yeah. but uh, ultimately they would have to stop running in order to cool down so that they don't die this horrible death by heat stroke. Mm. Whereas we, because we've got this great super um, sweating strategy and a lot of nakedness to cool off of, um, we could keep running, catch up with them, force them to sprint again, and then again, and again, until they become so weakened by heat stroke that they were easy to kill or, or just died. And so, yeah, this uh. is, you know, this is the superpower part of it. We can um, run, exercise, and stay cool all at the same time. So I've heard this theory before that that was the original way that humans hunted or one of the very original ways um, in, uh, you know, our very early history. And I saw I wish I could remember the name. I saw this on persistence TikTok. Persistence hunting. Persistence um, hunting. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah or persistence running. Yeah. 
I, I saw I saw on TikTok, and of course I can't remember the username, but this guy describing it as, imagine how creepy that would be if you're like a, an animal, if you're a gazelle or whatever is being hunted, and you're like, oh, there's this creature with a spear, it's trying to get me, I'm going to run away. Oh, I think I got away from it. You And you rest, and like, oh wait, here it comes, wait, there it is, it's still coming for me. <laughs> I gotta, like I gotta zombies, keep running. zombies, right? Yeah. You know, zombies don't run very fast, well, in some movies, but they're just like constantly coming at you. Yes, right. that is us. Yeah, and, and so... And because we have this special superpower, being able to evaporate heat in a way that almost no other animal does. That's really so uh, that's so cool. Like when I'm I am a I run distance for exercise. I like to go on long runs. Normally I run three miles, but on a weekend I'll run, you know, seven or eight miles or something like that. But I'm very slow. I take a lot of breaks. I walk a lot. It's hot in Los Angeles. But that is you're saying this when I'm doing that, I'm sort of partaking in like mankind's humankind's uh, original advantage yeah you're totally <laughs> flexing to any animals that are watching <laughs> that's so cool well uh, and that's so different than what we normally hear about human humanity's evolutionary because we normally hear about it in terms of the brain which you have mentioned but all oh, that we make tools and xyz this is not sort of part of the narrative that we that we use for here is how humanity you know got a leg up and took over the world Right. Well, I mean, I think it's part and parcel, right? Uh, obviously, having big brains and, you know, being able to construct things that help us along the way is, you know, important. Yeah. But, you know, the fact that we could um, stay cool in really hot environments allowed us to um, hunt during the day when a lot of similarly sized mammals uh, have to hide out in the shade. Um, and it allowed us to live in almost um, any ecosystem, right? Because when it gets cold, we can wear the pelts of other animals, mm. but we can handle the heat. Right. That's and real so we've been able to dominate the, the natural world um, sort of for better or for worse. And, you know, what's really kind of odd is that, you know, as we like face this coming climate apocalypse, which is, you know, part and parcel to humans dominating the natural world, um, you know, as climate, you know, heats things up, we are going to need our sweating capabilities to, to stay cool. And so it's kind of a little macabre or ironic that, you know, this this biological function that has allowed us in part to dominate the world is ultimately going to, you know, help us survive the apocalypse that we created ourselves. Yeah. I, I've actually read about, and, and I don't know if we're jumping ahead here at all, but um, I've read about the idea that there's a particular temperature that we need to worry about in climate change. It's, I think it's called the wet bulb temperature. Is this right? Yeah. Where, like the danger zone is literally related to the the temperature at which our sweat is able to effectively cool us or not. That some places are going to go over that temperature and our sweat will not be able. Do I have that right? Yeah. So the, the idea is like, I think if you've sweated in a variety of places, um, uh, you know that like, you know, when you're in a desert, you don't feel as hot, even if it's like super, super hot outside. And mm. that's because you're sweating so fast um, that heat, that all that water vapor close to your skin is being whisked out into the atmosphere because the air in the desert is super dry. But if you are in a very humid place, right, there is a lot of water vapor, you know, evaporated mm -hmm. water around you. And so when you are sweating, um, it's actually hard for those water molecules, even though your body's really hot and they would normally evaporate up, there's this kind of back pressure because there's already a lot of water molecules yeah. in the air kind of 
pushing back and making it harder for you to evaporate away your heat. And that's why, you know, humans feel worse often in a humid place because it's yeah. actually harder for us to get that heat away because, you know, it's hard you know, physically, uh, the physics of it is hard for the, those water molecules to to occupy space where it's, you know, already very packed with water molecules. Wow. Wait, so uh, I'm sorry, I have to ask something very basic, because I understand that we sweat so that, you know, the water will evaporate and that cools us. But I'm realizing I don't know why does water evaporating cool us down? <laughs> Oh, great question. Okay. Thank you. Yay. Extremely basic. I probably should oh, know you're, this you're, from no, high school no, no, bio no. class or something. You're, you're like letting me nerd out on like some <laughs> physics and biochemistry. So um, if you've ever been in the kitchen, right, and mm -hmm. uh, you have like a sauce and you're, you're getting all fancy and you want to make a reduction, like a reduction, mm -hmm. right? Um, and nice so balsamic that, glaze. Yes. Um, you need to heat that very slowly, right, to get the water molecules out into the atmosphere and kind of like effectively reduce that down to, you know, kind of a sludge, a delicious sludge. Mm -hmm. And so the process of heat evaporation, like the process of water evaporation, sorry, is actually consuming heat, right? You mm. need to turn on your stove to make those water molecules leave your sauce. Oh, okay, right. right. And so the process of um, evaporating the water in your sweat off your body is consuming heat to do that. Like you need oh. to consume heat to evaporate water. And so it's literally consuming the heat of your body in order to whisk that water up into the atmosphere. Uh, oh, I get it. Okay. So it's like, there's this, so like the, there's, there's heat coming in. I'm out in the sun. There's heat coming in, hitting my body and the ambient temperature. And that's going to heat me up to the point where I die. But instead, I've got all this water on my body. And that water is sort of like using that heat to be turned into gas. It's like a chemical reaction using up all this heat sort of before I end up internalizing it and taking it, taking it away. Yes. Like I got too um, much vinegar in my house, so I'll buy a whole lot of baking soda and now I'm going to have less vinegar because I've used it all to turn it. I think of every chemical reaction as baking soda and vinegar, which is very stupid of me. But I just go back to elementary school. Um, so I would say that that strategy of like getting yourself wet with a bodily fluid is the best strategy for any animal to cool down. Humans happen to have millions of glands specifically yeah. for that purpose. Dogs use saliva but other animals use all sorts of other bodily fluids, right? You're talking so, about pee. Right. So if you don't have millions of sweat glands to dispatch sweat to your, your search, you have to rely on something else, namely pee or watery poop. That's what vultures do. They poop on their own legs. Seals urinate on themselves. Uh, honeybees vomit on themselves <laughs> in order to get their body wet to, uh, you know, evaporate away wow. their heat. So, yeah, you know, if you know that, then sweat is so much less gross, right? Imagine yeah. you're all on the subway, you know, <laughs> and instead of just sweating, we have, okay, we'll just leave it there. And that's why, and that's also why, like, just getting, just getting wet, wet, just immersing yourself in water um, uh, also works to a certain extent. Uh, yeah. Also, the water is probably cooler than the, than the ambient temperature, but also it, it, it evaporates in the same way. That's why you feel chilly when you get out of the pool. Right. And um, so folks who there's some people who have a genetic condition where their sweat glands didn't 
form in utero. And so they don't actually have sweat glands and mm. they are miserable, um, even in like temperate climates. And so they spritz themselves. Uh, typically I've heard, uh, you know, as a, as a solution, you, you walk around with like a spray bottle uh, and spritz yourself wow. with water in order to achieve the same end. Wait, I want to hear more about this. It's a genetic condition and it, it means you cannot, you, you do not sweat at all. You don't have sweat glands or you simply don't sweat. Yeah. So what happens is uh, in utero um, is when your sweat glands are formed. And so you're born with all the sweat glands that you're going to have, although they don't get truly functional until your toddler years, but you're, you're born with what you got. Mm -hmm. And some folks have a, a genetic condition where that message to make the sweat glands um, doesn't get hurt. And so they are born with skin, but uh, their skin just doesn't have sweat glands in it. And so they don't have this capacity to cool down. And it's it's actually a really tough life um, because we are actually yeah. constantly sweating. So, you know, we mostly notice it when our body kind of goes berserk, when our body temperature really rises, either because you're you're running, right? Yeah. So you're creating a lot of internal heat or, you know, it's really hot outside, um, but at any moment of the day, right now you are sweating, right? Your body's making incremental changes. Well, I'm to very your, nervous your for this interview, but <laughs> <laughs> um, no. And so like, it's just like releasing tiny amounts of, of sweat and it's uh -huh. evaporating before you even notice it. Wow. That's just part of homeostasis of staying the same temperature all the time. Yes. Well, I would imagine if you can't sweat, that that would be very dangerous. Like you'd have to be very aware of the temperature of the place that you're going. Like it would be hard to go on, you know, here in LA, we have a couple hundred degree days, uh, more and more of them every year. And you'd have to be very careful about going outside. I would imagine if you could, you could, w wouldn't you be more at risk of heat stroke and things like that? Oh yeah. You're constantly at risk of heat stroke. And I would say probably there are very few people with that condition living in LA. Um, yeah. I think you'd, you'd want to go to more Northern climes. Wow. That is wild. Well, let me, let's just talk a little bit about the shame factor that you brought up. Like we shouldn't be ashamed of sweat. It's better than other things. It's better than shitting on your legs to cool down. <laughs> Although now that I know it's a strategy, I might try it next time I'm on a run. Actually, a lot of marathon runners, I think, do use that strategy. Frankly, it is a thing that happens sometimes as people being boo on themselves. Well, <laughs> not for that reason, but maybe that's part of why. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but but I, I also think that, like, I've always felt that with bodily fluids, there is something fundamentally unnerving about them because they remind us of our animal natures. Like, I th I've always felt one of the reasons we like we don't like poop. In addition to it being and you know gross and smelling bad and having a revulsion to it, is that it like reminds us that we're just like biological machines when we want to be so much more, and so we want to get it away from us and not think about it. You know what I mean? It like it's it somehow reminds us of our animal nature, and sweat is kind of the same way, especially if it's our our fundamental you know human advantage. Like it, I don't know, does that track for you at all? Well, I think, yeah, I think you're onto something. Um, what's so interesting to me about sweat uh, is that, you know, unlike some of these other bodily fluids that you mentioned, like peeing or pooping or even like burping, 
right? Mm -hmm. All of these things, you can control it just for a second. So you're in a social situation, right? You feel something happening and you can, you know, move out of that social situation and deal with it. But with sweat, you have absolutely an utter zero control over your body's decision to open the floodgates. And I think that that is partly why there's so much kind of discomfort and shame associated with it, because it is utterly out of our control. And, you know, humanity really doesn't like it when things are not in our control. We're a little bit micromanaging as a species, and particularly in this era of, you know, online curated personalities, like having like a an image, you know, that your body, you know, goes rogue on you, um, I think is, is, you know, why it's very particularly a kind of shameful. Well, and for, and for performers like myself, it, it can, you know, you're, you're literally on stage, um, you know, and if you're, you're perspiring in a way that is obvious to people, you have no control over it. And it's like, you know, you're in a situation where you, you should be controlled and it's really unnerving whenever that happens. I've had experiences on stage where I had sudden dry mouth or where I had heart palpitations. I had a panic attack on stage at one point. I've experienced sweating as well. And it's like really upsetting. You know, I don't know if you remember, this is very specific to me, but do you remember, you remember when Marco Rubio had to grab the glass of water? Do you remember this? when he was giving the speech mm-hmm. he was doing the um uh the response to the state of the union and he's okay. and he got dry mouth and he stepped off a stage uh, of a camera really awkwardly to get a, to get a drink of water and and you know it came out that he had like a, he had sort of a phobia of always needing water nearby because he got dry mouth all the time and a lot of people made fun of him and i was like oh i get it i understand i i have been there man that is solidarity. like solidarity solidarity you you are not totally in control of yourself and you need that thing nearby um so yeah it, it it's really interesting that we don't have any control over sweat specifically, though, because like, I mean, we have control over our breathing and that's the most fundamental, you know, bodily process of all. Right. That's like the the most basic, uh, you know, thing that our body is doing to maintain itself. And we can hold on to that for at least a period of time. Um, but sweat, we can't like hold it in until we get really overheated and then it floods out. We can't hold it in whatsoever. Why is there something special about sweat that? means it works that way? Well, I think it speaks to the fact that, like, temperature control is, like, utterly important for us. So, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, what makes us hot, you know, what makes us need to sweat. Well, even if you're not in, you know, a really hot environment or running, you are constantly, your body's constantly doing biochemical reactions, right? Mm -hmm. It's like dividing cells, it's breaking down glucose, it's making hormones. And many of those biochemical reactions produce heat. So you just like sitting on your couch, eating a bag of chips, watching Netflix, you are actually creating a lot of body heat. And, you know, that happens also while you're sleeping. So so your body needs to be constantly uh, on top of of your temperature. And so I think that that like just speaks to, you know, why it's so essential and why it's so kind of amazing that humans have such a a sensitive control mechanism for for doing that, for, for controlling our temperature. Yeah, that is we're just constantly adjusting the thermostat all of the time, all the time. But then if that's the case, people are still very sensitive to to temperature. Right. You know, my partner and I just had just had an argument the other day about the thermostat in the middle of the night because she wanted a little bit colder. And I'm like, 
We're, we're asleep. You put a fan on. You don't need the thermostat to be at the same temperature when you're asleep as when you're awake. You bump it up a couple degrees to save power. You know what I mean? That's how I was raised. <laughs> We've, I've become a thermostat dad, uh, unfortunately. But but so this is still something that people feel really, really strongly about. And, and so we have... I don't know. It's like we have a limited degree to adjust our temperature. It's not it's not like we are. Com- it's interesting. You said we're comfortable at like many different climates, but also we're very we have this desire to fine tune it. I don't know. Well, yeah. Um, and, you know, we are each our own unique biological selves. Right. So, you know, right. I was saying kind of, you know, we put on the pelts of, of other animals. Right. Uh, maybe uh, you need two pelts and maybe your partner <laughs> needs one. But I think I'm going to step away from this particular conversation because, like, I do not get in between couples. <laughs> I uh, honey, just put on another pelt. Come on. Um, so, OK, so uh, what exactly <laughs> I'm surprised we're 22 minutes in this interview. We haven't said this yet. What exactly is sweat? What is so- in it? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. It's so much more complicated than salt and water. So all your sweat glands, when when your body gets the temperature directive to cool down, it sources sweat from your blood. So sweat is actually the watery parts of blood minus the big things like blood cells and immune cells and platelets. Yeah. (laughs) Sweat is blood? Yeah, well, it's the watery parts of blood. So anytime, (laughs) so what happens is, okay, you you get hot, right? Yeah. And immediately your body's like, oh, crap, we've got to get the core cool. And so all your blood vessels push up against your skin, which is why people with lighter skin tones turn red, because all of your vasculature, you've got these veins pushing up against your your skin. And that's for two reasons. One, uh, because your sweat glands need to source uh, sweat from somewhere. And so they're pulling out the watery parts of blood. And two, because effectively you're cooling the hot blood in your core. It's swooshing out to the surface of your skin, passing by your skin, where the evaporating water cools it, and then it swoops back into your core to, to cool you down. But um, wow. the, the sweat, actually, it, the reason it's salty is because, you know, we're, we're salty oceans inside, right? Our blood is very mm-hmm. salty, and so um, so is our sweat. But Anything that's circulating in your sweat, whether it's hormones or vitamins or the drugs we consume, mm-hmm. um, that also comes out in your sweat. So I went to a uh, forensic chemist who um, effectively took a fingerprint of mine, because you also know that fingerprints are just sweat prints. They're inked in sweat. And so just mm-hmm. with the tiny little bit yeah. of sweat that I left with my index finger, she could tell me that I had had my morning coffee because she found you know evidence of caffeine metabolites, like caffeine, in my sweat. Now, had I, you know topped up my coffee with a little vodka or, you know, snorted a line of cocaine as part of my morning routine, (laughs) that also would come out in my sweat and be left in like the trace amounts of a fingerprint. And so, yeah, when when you're dripping on your yoga mat or onto, you know, whatever it is that you do, you are actually like dripping out secrets. It's not just like secrets (laughs) that you're like overheated or maybe nervous talking to your special crush, but you're actually literally leaving chemicals behind that that can also say like whether you have certain diseases and so like this kind of um kind of forensic analysis is super young right it's just being developed Uh 
But um, yeah, they're, you know, the next generation of, of kind of iPhones and smartwatches will or may include these um, kind of adhesive patch add-ons where you Whoa. can imagine, kind of imagine a Band-Aid, right, with some yeah. electronics that are measuring your sweat. And then it sends you a little push alert on your, your smartphone or your smartwatch saying, dude, um, you've had one too many at the bar. Best to take a cab home tonight instead of, you know, driving or wow. um, athletes. Um, you know, you can imagine a sports team. There's a coach on the sidelines watching the players in a really important game. They are all wearing these sweat patches, which are sending, you know, information about the contents of their sweat mm -hmm. and you know they the the coach sees that one of the players is you know releasing you know stress hormones and thinks to them okay best to switch out that player so this is kind of what's on the horizon so really exciting wow. kind of you know if if personal measurement is your jam like you have a fitbit this is like the next generation of that so that's wow. cool but it's also terrifying because you yeah. can imagine, you know, uh, just with a fingerprint, which we leave literally everywhere, um, an employer. Uh, yeah, give, able this, to find give out. this to Amazon to put on warehouse workers and right. it's a much different story. Right. Or, you know, are you in your cubicle at work um, showing up intoxicated and is your boss able to like lift a print and, right. and you know, make decisions like that or health insurers? Because um, you can find out, you know, certain diseases leave biomarkers in your blood, which come out in your sweat. And, you know, they could also, you know, surreptitiously sample that and, you know, make decisions about you or your coverage that, you know, may not be, be co like in cahoots with, you know, wow. justice. Well, it's because, look, I did a th this is wild to me because we did a whole segment on our show, Adam Ruins Everything, a couple of years ago about how the idea of sweating out toxins is <gasps> kind of bullshit. And we're going to get to that in a second. I want to ask you for your take on this. You're mouthing. Thank you. at me. Yeah, we're going to get into it. Um, but I really, you know, I still have to I go to yoga classes and the yoga teachers still go sweat out all those toxins. Right. And it bugs me. I'm like, fine, I'm just doing the pose. I'm not thinking about the pseudoscience. I wish instead they would say, let's sweat out all those secrets, sweat <laughs> out the secrets. <laughs> that is so much more evocative to think that you are releasing secrets onto your yoga mat. That like that feels spiritual to me in a way. Right. Purging those like negative things that you bottle up inside, right? Yeah. Like the emotions. But yeah, no. Oh my gosh, wait, wait, sweating wait, wait, is not let, a detox strategy. Let's take let let us go to break on that note because we're gonna once we get into that we're gonna spend the next half hour really unpacking that. So if you want to find out about why sweating out toxins is bullshit, come on right back with us after break. We'll be right back with more Sarah Everts. Okay, we're back with Sarah Everts, uh, and we were just getting into, you said toxins are not, or sorry, sweating is not a detox strategy. Uh, tell me what is so wrongheaded about this idea that you hear all the time that you sweat out toxins. What's the problem with that? Oh my gosh, this uh, myth kills me um, because if you know anything about how the body functions, you know that <laughs> this cannot be true. So remember how I said that sweat comes from the watery parts of blood, right? Mm. And so if we sweat out toxins, you would literally have to sweat out all of your blood, all the water in your blood in order to get all the nasty stuff out. Right? Oh, true. 
you would literally have to sweat out every last drop of your blood to get the detox, to get the toxins out onto your skin and, you know, away. And that would leave you completely dehydrated and likely dead. Yeah. Instead, our body has kidneys, um, which filter the blood of the nasty stuff and dispatch that out in pee. And so anything that's coming out in your sweat is incidental. And certainly some nasty stuff comes out, right? Anything that's circulating in your blood that hasn't perhaps passed through your kidneys yet can come out, things like urea or, or heavy metals. But at the same time, really important things are coming out like glucose, this is your body's energy molecule, or vitamins or hormones. Everything that is coming out in your sweat is just happens to be coursing through your blood, but it is not the way that your body kind of actively gets those toxins out. And you, you can't do that. Like if, if that was the way, then you would have to dehydrate yourself to death, which, you know, really not an optimal <laughs> life strategy. Right. Cause you're only, you're only sweating out a, a little bit of the water. So like, even if the toxin that you're worried about was able to pass through the skin and leave in that particular way, rather than just a marker of it, well, you're only sweating out what some small percentage of your blood because exactly. otherwise you'd be dead. So you're, you, all it does is indicate that there's more of it in you at, at its very best. Exactly. Um, and so what's interesting about that is like sweat could be used in the future as like a strategy for identifying, oh, hey, you have maybe this contaminate contaminant mm, in you. Right. It could be a diagnostic um, mm, to say, you know, this is circulating in your blood in the same way that you can figure out, oh, you've been drinking alcohol yeah. um, because it's coming out in your sweat. But that's not how your body's purging those things. Yeah, your body is very clearly purging stuff that you don't want to have in your body via pee and poop. That's why pee and poop are gross. Exactly. <laughs> right? That's why that's why I assume oh you're the you're the science writer. So I'm going to assume there's an evolutionary connection with the fact that I am revolted by my poop to the fact that there's stuff in it that I don't want in my body. If I want it back in my body, it would be delicious to me and I would want to eat it, but I don't want to eat it. So therefore, my body must be trying to reject that stuff. Right. That's like how it we do that already. Those classes. I'm. <laughs> you're giving me such a look like this guy is really going oh, I'm to enjoying detail. you. Your explanations very, very much. Well, so what these class when they're saying instead of you saying sweat out all your toxins, they should you know, the, the guru should go with you to the bathroom and say pee and poop all out all your toxins <laughs> and do some like, you know, therapeutic peeing and pooping classes. That's what we should have to get the toxins out. Right. <laughs> I, I, you want to go to the wellness center. I, I love this. So what, what's kind of like an interesting segue about this, though, is right. Okay. Like when you do go to, say, a yoga class and sweat a lot or, you know, a workout, you do feel good. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so yeah. there is like, so what, what those yoga instructors and, and literally every spa on earth and, you know, spin instructors, all these people who kind of promote this thing, they're referring often to this like very lived experience of, wow, I feel euphoric after a workout. Yes. And what's actually happening is that when, when you sweat a lot, um, your heart uh, you know, starts to beat really quickly. And so whether you're sweating and actually exercising or just sweating in a, in a sauna, you're, um, because your heart is pumping blood so quickly through your body in order to cool down, um, you're getting uh, the release of all these 
happy chemicals, things like mm. epinephrine and, and um, endorphins. And these happy hormones that, you know, come when you exercise do make you feel so happy that you are having a catharsis, right? You feel like you're getting out toxic emotions, right? And yeah. that's certainly true, but you're not actually literally getting out toxic chemicals. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing that feels better than my favorite part of going on a run. And, you know, obviously running often is, is pain and you just wait for it to be over. And it's, it's specifically an endurance exercise. You're enduring it. Um, but then you come home and you're all sweaty and then you take a shower and then you feel so refreshed and there's something so good about it. So, so I, this is going to be my next question, um, was even though the toxin thing isn't real, uh, the, the, you know, having a centralized way to sweat a lot, a steam room or a sauna. I know people say sauna. My grandparents were Norwegian. They taught me to say sauna. So I say sauna and you give me, you gave me a fist. So in the air, so you think that's right. Okay. I got I made fun of right. by, I got made fun of by kids in my high school for saying sauna, <laughs> not saying sauna because they were all long Islanders. They were, oh, we got to take a sauna. I was like, no, it's sauna. Anyway. Uh, so th this is an age old practice, right? Is people specifically going in a small hot room to sweat. There must be a purpose for it. And is that the purpose? Yeah, maybe. I mean, if you look at human history, right, um, from, you know, indigenous people of the Americas to like the hammams in the Middle East, to the Jimjilbangs in Korea, to the banyas in Russia, to the saunas in Finland and, and most of Western Europe, like there is this catharsis and a desire to sweat in vast quantities. And I do think it's because you get this release of happy chemicals that like also give you a sense of purpose, a sense of calm. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's a very ancient practice. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we see the, the modern incarnations and, you know, spin classes and hot yoga. Yeah. Is it though actually good for you in addition to feeling good and just, oh, I feel refreshed and, and maybe my brain is a little clearer or something like that. Cause I've got some, some new chemicals coursing through my brain that I like. Is there a health benefit to going and intensively sweating for half an hour to an hour and forget exercise, right? Just if, if you're just going in the sauna on a cold day, uh, is there a health benefit to that? Yeah, so there is. Um, and it's the health benefit is to your heart. So mm. there have been a lot of like pseudoscience claims and oh my God, it kills me to, I love to go to a sauna or to spas, like, but most of the things that they claim just kill me. Like it does not cure cancer to go to a sauna. <laughs> like people. <laughs> okay. Um, but what actually has done in terms of like really good science, um, Finnish researchers did this like enormous cohort studying people over many, many years. And they found that if you went to the sauna very regularly, you had a lower incidence of heart attack, heart disease, um, death by, you know, something related to heart health. So it is good for your heart because your heart is getting exercise. When you are sweating in vast quantities, right? You have to be pushing the hot blood from your interior out to the surface mm. of your skin, getting all that liquid to the surface of your skin. And so your heart is booting it, right? And so your heart is a muscle and it's getting exercise. And, you know, the, the downstream effects of this are, you know, plaque clearing enzymes are expressed and, and other good things for your cardiovascular system. And so, yeah, there are some actual health benefits just to sitting in a very hot place and forcing your body to cool down. Um, it's, you know, not time to 
quit your gym membership yet, because of course you're not, you know, burning that many calories and you're not building muscle, but you are working out your heart. But, you know, wow, the one tiny cool. caveat is this research was done in like Finnishmen. And I don't know if you've been to Finland, but there are more saunas in Finland than there are humans. Yeah. And, you know, then when they were doing this like very long term study, they struggled to find anybody who didn't go to the sauna at least one time a week. And so these health benefits <laughs> that I just told you about, that's if you go like four to five times a week. So you really need to like up your your, your game to, you know, get improve your heart health. But but the point is, is that there are, you know, there are health benefits and, you know, maybe you're making, you're getting micro benefits if you just go to the sauna now and again. Is it now, does the humidity matter at all? You know, a lot of times in the sauna, you go in, you're, it's, there's dry heat, there's a wet steam room, I guess. I don't know. It's uh, supposed a variation is good. Now I'm just asking you for, for advice on how to take a good sauna. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> is it good when you jump in a frozen lake? That's what we used to do at my grandparents' cabin. You go in the sauna. Glorious. And then you, then oh you my jump gosh. in the, in the yes. freezing cold lake afterwards. And then you go back in the sauna. Uh, it was great fun when I was 13 years old. Maybe I would enjoy it less now, but. Um, I, I enjoy it enormously. Yeah, yeah, that's called the heat cycle. And 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 it's just incredible to have the um, the contrast. Um, it really just makes you feel glorious. Um, yeah. It definitely ups those ha happy chemicals. <laughs> but so much of the time, these are like I, I, this actually makes me feel a little bit better because especially in L.A., you know, there, there's pe people are always coming up with a new treatment that is claimed to do something like a couple of years ago. The big thing in L.A. was was cryotherapy, where you go get in a cold chamber, you know, and it's supposed to do X, Y, Z to your body. And my take was always like, eh, it probably just feels good. It, it's just an extreme feeling, right? You go in a really cold room, you withstand it, you come out, then you feel warmer and you feel like something has happened to you. But and I was sort of assumed that a sauna was the same way, but there actually can be like a, a health benefit to this, even if it's not going to cure cancer or toxins or things like that. It can be good in a subtler way. Yeah. But I think like like exercise, you have to do it regularly. Right. So if you decide to get all super healthy and, and you know, get the benefits of exercise and just go hardcore for two weeks and then never exercise again, you know, on the you know course right. of your life, it's not going to have like an ultimately great impact. But if you regularly go to the sauna and regularly give your heart, you know, this this workout, I do think, you know, that that is going to benefit you. And it's not for all the people who are like doing a lot of coke and getting really drunk and doing going on a bender and then saying now I got to go to the steam room to sweat the toxins out that's not like the healthiest set of behavior that's not really going to work in the way that you think it is um okay well look we got we got a little bit of time left uh, and I just want to know what other amazing shit did you learn about sweat that I don't even know to ask about that you can blow my mind with in the time that we have left what are what's the coolest story in your book about sweat Oh, Lord. Um, we haven't even talked about stink, right? No. Oh, <laughs> my God. We haven't like... even talked about the fact that sweat is stinky. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. I really didn't think we would fill this whole interview with sweat facts, and we're not even part of the way through it. So, yeah, tell me about, about stinky, stinky sweat. So like up until this point, we've been talking about like this one gland that releases like the salty floods to cool you mm -hmm. down. But there is another. Right. And it appears at puberty, um, mostly anywhere where you grow hair. And this other sweat gland, it's called the apocrine gland. It's what's responsible for uh, morphing armpits into stink zones uh, from mm. the teenage years onwards. And that sweat is not salt watery at all. It's actually mm. more like earwax. 
And it mm. actually comes out not smelling bad at all, but you know, you know, you're covered in bacteria, right? Like we are a hybrid organism of yeah. like human and, and bacteria doing stuff. And the bacteria living in your armpit eat that other kind of sweat and it's their me metabolic products, which is like a euphemism for poop in the scientific <laughs> jargon. It's their microbial poop that, you know, is the stink that gives you your body odor print and me a, a slightly different body odor print, but you know, that definitely gives us some body odor. <laughs> so yeah. Um, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, we have top notes, right? Like there are human top notes to our BO, right? The oh. scientists have like figured out, you know, what are the things in human BO where you go into an elevator and mm -hmm. it's super stinky and you know that it was a human in there before and not a dog. Right. Yeah. Um, and those two top notes, one is kind of like smells like a raunchy goat. Um, mm. It's like goaty and, you know, you're talking about nasty. this like you're a wine connoisseur. <laughs> it is. It's the same science, dude. And then the other one is like overripe passion fruit with onions. <laughs> like those are like the two human top mm, notes. With hints of with, <laughs> with hints of overripe passion. Yes, I'm getting human. I'm getting human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's what, you know, and those are like the things that you and I probably share in common about our BO, but mm -hmm. then, you know, there's like hundreds of other molecules that, you know, make it possible for a dog to, you know, track me versus track you based on a, a t-shirt that, you know, we've worn. And, and, you know, there's so many like interesting things that humans learn from one another from our BO, um, you know, just, you know, we, we learn the odors of, of the people we love, like siblings can identify each other, even if they haven't seen each other for, for tears based on that BO, yeah. we can identify wow, really? anxiety, right? Like I have just met you and I could uh, tell if you're anxious or not, most likely um, from, you know, the, the sweat on your T-shirt because we, we sweat differently when we're anxious. But you wouldn't do this consciously. I mean, I've never been around a person that, yeah, they smell anxious. I have seen a per I've been around a person and and felt anxiety coming off of them. Are you saying I am sort of subconsciously or unconsciously detecting anxiety based on their based on their smell? Really? Yeah, so this was like an observation that first came from uh, law enforcement who observed that, you know, when people come in to be interrogated, they smell like themselves, whatever that is. But when they leave, they all smell the same, like anxious. And when scientists... Uh, Wait, cops were like, yeah, all the perps smell the <laughs> yes! same. You yeah. know, you've been in this business long enough, you know... That all the perps smell the same. That's, that's what a weird, who's making this observation? Well, it's not just the perps we all do. It's kind of super stressful to be interrogated by a cop. So uh -huh. like, it's, like I imagine a lot of innocent people smell anxious too. Of course. Um, and when scientists tried to, you know, suss out, like, what the heck are they talking about? They gave people T-shirts to wear and then they put them in front of movies. One was like, a, you know, a nature documentary and the other one was a really scary film. And they collected the, the different kinds of sweat. Mm -hmm. And then they gave it to an, a panel of sniffers um, of people whose whose job it is to sniff things. That's a great job, by the way. <laughs> um, and uh they could tell these perfect strangers just from the stink um, who who was anxious and who wasn't. And, you know, the organization probably most interested in doing research on this and that, that funds a lot of research is the American military, because you can imagine that in a tank situation. Right. If you've got a, a bunch of people working close together and one person gets super 
anxious and they start making this odor, um, it could spread the fear uh, amongst mm. the other people and in a combat situation could compromise that mission. Mm -hmm. And so um, lots of chemists are trying to find a way to a, identify that top anxiety note, which they haven't been able to yet of the hundreds of molecules percolating out of our armpits that that they haven't managed to, to pluck. But once they do, the idea is to find a way to capture it. Like you would capture a poison gas with a gas mask or CO2, you know, like carbon capture techniques. So yeah, that's, you know, that's just one of the little tidbits of information coming out of our, our body odor and, you know, moving that's, from me to you. That's wild. Wait, so I always, you know, I used to hear about pheromones as being a thing and I think we're moving that way, but it was, and it's always like buy this vial of pheromones and put them on and you'll attract women and whatnot. Yeah. And that's even like, I mean, hell, even like Axe body spray I had like a whole ad campaign basically about scent is going to, you know, attract women to you and stuff like that. Uh, it always seemed like bullshit, but that sounds to me like what you're describing. If I can, if I'm able to sense something subtly, if, if, if someone's smell that is not even consciously detectable to me is causing, is influencing my opinion of them, it sounds like we're halfway to pheromones being real. Are pheromones real? You have a sneaky expression on your face. <laughs> well, uh, I am a person who does buy a uh, pheromone cologne on the internet for funsies. Um, <laughs> because you think uh, it works or because you're like, no. what the hell is this? Well, I can tell you because I uh, was doing an experiment in the outskirts of Berlin with some uh, horny boars, like wild pigs. I, I, we can talk about that later. But anyway, um, so, so because our okay. body odor appears at puberty, right? Mm -hmm. And because puberty is also when we become sexually mature, um, you know, it, it, it is a logical progression that, oh, perhaps um, there's something in our BO that is helping us find a mate. And, you know, probably the best evidence found uh, to this effect in humans was done by a guy named Klaus Vedekin. And so he he took a bunch of t-shirts, gave them to men to wear. And most of these kinds of studies have been done in like heterosexual men to heterosexual women. Like a lot of science has ignored the, you know, greater diversity um, that's out there in humans, but okay. So uh, sadly, um, mm, so in yeah. this case, um, though the, these men um, had their, their stink on different t-shirts and the women were told to rank them. Uh, for attractiveness. Meanwhile, everybody's giving blood samples. And what the scientists found was that women found men to be most attractive when any combined progeny would have immune systems that were really strong. Right. Mm, so, okay. you know, this makes sense if you, you know, think about humans in an evolutionary context. For most of our history, um, it's been microbial pathogens that have been our greatest foe, whether it's a, a plague or a pandemic or just a, an infection. So it behooves us to pick a partner um, to mate with that, you know, will produce progeny that can, you know, survive. But, mm -hmm. you know, that's not very sexy, right? And it kind right. of comes into like, uh, uh, contrast with, you know, our pop culture notion that, you know, I put on this pheromone cologne and you become my <laughs> sex automaton, right? Um, yeah. And that, you know, is not true, thank the Lord, because the dating scene already is pretty dystopian. But, <laughs> but that kind of chemical does exist in the animal kingdom. So like a moth, um, 
that silkworm moths make this, this molecule called bombacol, and a female will release it. And literally every male within sniffing distance makes a beeline towards her. It is like the ultimate um, definition of a booty call. Right? Wow. Or wild pigs, wild hogs, okay. um, they make uh, a pheromone. The men, the male, make a pheromone in their saliva. And when they breathe heavily on a female in heat, she will like swing around and lift her rump to present it to the male for mounting. Wow. And so, right, there is nothing like that um, that scientists have found uh, in human body odor. And they have been looking for, for literally decades. And, you know, there hasn't, you know, that it's been a pretty impotent search for lack of a better word. And, you know, but that doesn't mean that there aren't kind of cues um, in, in our BO. And, and so for even that, that t-shirt study where, you know, women were finding men um, like attractive if they were, you know, had complementary immune systems, like, Scientists have done that state, but they haven't figured out, like, what's the component of body odor? Like, what's the actual chemical that's causing that reaction? And so all of these online entrepreneurs that sell <laughs> pheromone cologne, what they're actually putting in is that boar pheromone. You know, that one, that one which, like, will make the female boar lift her runt and, and spin. And they right. put that in because... It has been found, those molecules are called androstenone and androstenol. They have been found in human sweat, but they've been found in both biological sexes. And the strict definition of a sex pheromone is that one sex makes it to attract the other. Mm. So like, it's just not a, like a, a human pheromone clone, but it, it, a human pheromone, but it is a boar pheromone. So all the dude bros out there who are buying these colognes on the internet and spritzing them on their bodies, they will attract a female, but it will not be a human female. It will be a wild pig female. And I am not a person who's judgy. So like, go for it. <laughs> that was such a long and wonderful explanation. So, and so what you're saying is, that uh, we do communicate with each other with our sweat to some extent. We are passing information back and forth. Um, but And maybe some of that is related to sex in as, in as much as sex is part of who we are and there's probably something going on, but it's very complex and it's not something you can, you can buy in a bottle. Um, and also we don't – we clearly – don't have a sexual behavior with each other where men just go, I want a woman to present herself somehow chemically. And then women do it. Cause that just doesn't fucking happen. Nobody. That's not how, that's not how it works at all. It works and might work in hogs that way, but we're just simply don't have that set of behaviors, but we may be communicating with each other. We are communicating with each other somehow using chemicals excreted through our skin. Yeah. And, you know, we're also sniffing each other constantly, right? Most human greetings. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Until COVID-19, most sure. human greetings involved a moment of, of proximity, you know, like whether you do a cheek kiss or a hug or you bow or mm. a handshake is a literal hands-on collection of somebody else's BO. Right. And, you know, actually this really great study was done where these scientists uh, surreptitiously filmed people meeting for the first time and shaking each other's hand. And they found that, you know, within moments of uh, like that handshake, the 
people like sniff their hands afterwards. Like they lift up their, in an unconscious sniffing of the handshake hand. Wow. And, you know, it was so shocking to the participants that many of them accused the scientists of like deep faking the videos. Like that, I didn't do that um, because it is so unconscious. And so we are sniffing each other and, you know, we are certainly gathering information and, and, and smell is important to us. I mean, we have so much nostalgia associated with odor, you know, when you go to, you know, the, the house of a loved one mm-hmm. or, you know, when you you like every time I, I land in Berlin, which is, you know, it has a certain smell, the air. This is like my smells like my smells like home. boar chemicals in Berlin to you. <laughs> anyway, so we have the like we are we are influenced um, yeah. and emotionally impacted by odors. And so, yeah, certainly we we smell our, our, our partner. And actually, that's the premise of, you know, smell dating. Like I went to a smell dating event in Moscow where, you know, <laughs> you pick a partner or you're matched based on, on BO, like the premise being that, you know, in this digital era where we're like swiping right and left, you know, at some point you're going to smell the body odor of your partner and it will be a make or break moment. Mm. And so why not skip to the chase or actually entirely skip the chase and just like, you know, do that first level triage on BO instead of, you know, say looks or a shared love of taxidermy or whatever hobbies and so you did have. You, did you try this? You smelled some. I did. You, you smelled some I BOs. And so they're presenting you with what vials or dirty t-shirts or what? No, what happens is, so you, you get a group of people together and mm-hmm. uh, the first thing that you do is you get a wet wipe and you wipe off any products that you've been wearing. And uh, then they take you through some high, uh, intensity intervals, um, some exercise to to work up a sweat, and then you're given a cotton pad where you dab in all the places, and then that pad is put into a glass jar, and the jar has a number, and you know the number of yourself, and the organizers know your number, and then there's a table, and all the glass jars are put on the table, and you sniff through them, and your job is to pick your top five. And uh, at the end, uh, you submit your top five. And if I picked your BO and you picked my BO, this being Moscow, we would get a VIP bracelet to an all-you-can-drink vodka cocktail lounge <laughs> to find out whether the optics uh, and hobbies also match. You get to um, go to you can go to a house rave in a warehouse <laughs> by the docks. That wasn't a yes. Russian accent. Sorry, I couldn't. Yes. Uh, I couldn't summon it that quickly. But okay. Uh, and and how when you smelled these bo's, was it first of all a was it stinky and b was it something that you had a a conscious because so much of what you're talking about is unconscious. Like I would imagine myself going sitting there going like. I, I don't know. Is uh, do I like one or two better? Like I don't know. You know. So you you do. So I remember. You know, some some of the bo's. You're just like, holy hell, no. Right. Like <laughs> I remember this one. It smelled like adolescent boy. Like just, but like no like I didn't ever want to smell that again and you know I also smelled a whole bunch that were like familiar like I can't even explain it it just was like oh that smells like human and a likable human maybe somebody that I maybe liked when you like like there it was more that nostalgic feeling and then um I I remember the number uh it was number 15 and like I sniff it and I'm just like yes like yes um, t- yes. Uh, and wow. it, yes. Uh, <laughs> it was like, it, it, you know, it didn't send me into like some, you know, 
you know, insane, like spinning, like I, you know, needed to bed somebody immediately, but it reminded me that, oh my God, there's this like very enjoyable thing called sex. And I certainly would be interested in finding out if I could do that very (laughs) enjoyable activity with this number 15. Wow. Number 15 didn't pick me. So just goes to say that like, God, in even in smell dating, you know, your heart is freaking broken. Depending. Yeah. I mean, I just want to end on this question. Like, like, why is it? Do you have any thought on why so much of this is unconscious? That's the that is the thing that is like coming back to it, because we could talk about food and the other half of food, which is pooping. Right. And both those things I do consciously. I know when I'm eating. I know when I'm pooping. I can decide not to do it to up to a point. Right. Um, and, uh, but, but sweat, we tend to think about it less. We have no control over it. We are releasing all these things without realizing it. We're picking up on what other people release without realizing it until you make the decision as you did to, to pay conscious attention to it. It's a much more invisible layer, uh, but it also seems really powerful. Like why, uh, why is that? And what effect does that have over our understanding of it? Yeah, well, I think it kind of speaks to, you know, our evolutionary history, right? If you look at other mammals, they are very driven by olfaction, by their noses. Um, They make all sorts of like decisions, like, you know, take the laboratory mouse. Mice like will literally smell each other's pee, like dip their noses in it to learn, you know, the virginity status of other animals, whether, you know, the like, whether they've had babies, like all sorts of identifying features they are yeah. learning through. Now we've evolved, you know, we still, you know, do smell each other. And I think that there's this like primordial, like this, like, you know, vestigial thing happened, like there, it's there, yeah. but, you know, we developed language, which is very useful for communicating subtle ideas. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of still there and I think it's influencing, but, you know, we also have free will and, and we do right. have control over our bodies, whether it's, you know, motivated uh, by a sense of decency or laws. Um, and so I, I think it kind of speaks to our evolutionary history. And, you know, what's interesting to me is that, you know, for the last 100 years, we've been really masking our body odors by, you know, using deodorants and antiperspirants. And we, you know, we are constantly putting these products on. And, you know, is that how is that, you know, right. affecting, you know, the you know background information that you get from me and I get from you and we meet each other um, that goes along with these other subtle things, you know, bodily cues or looks or turns of phrases that give me an idea of who you are and you an idea of who I am. So yeah. it's like this, con- you know, we have this constant tension between you know, uh, uh, between our understanding of ourselves as biological and as social organisms, you know, that uh, we've built this thing on top of our on top of our biology with our big ass brains, right? That using language, we've built this whole other layer of existence, of sociality, of culture, of language, of all the things that we mainly dwell in that make us human. Then there's this other biological layer that we uh, only sometimes interact with. Sometimes we interact with it too much. Sometimes people say, you know, the the idea that, you know, all human behavior can be reduced to evolutionary explanations, clearly not true, but also some can be in like a really complex, weird way. And that seems to really be what it is a part of this. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's inordinately complicated and and it's very hubristic for for humans to think that we're like above all this, right? Yeah. Um, above our biological history. Um, no, I think that that stays with us. And, you know, I, I kind of want to lean into it. I, it's partly why I wrote the book. Yeah. Well, I hope folks check out the book. It's called The Joy of Sweat. You can get it, just as a reminder, everybody, at our special bookshop at factuallypod.com slash books if you want to support the show and your local bookshop or walk down to your local bookshop or local library and get a copy. Sarah, this conversation has been so fascinating. Thank you so much. And I, I hope you'll come back on next time you're exploring another uh, weird and disgusting and uh, mind-blowing part of the human <laughs> body or human experience. It'd be a pleasure. It was great talking to you. Well, thank you once again to Sarah Everts for coming on the show. If you want to buy her book, The Joy of Sweat, please go to factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books to buy at our special bookshop. That is it for us this week here on Factually. I want to thank our producers, Chelsea Jacobson and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, Andrew WK for our theme song, The Fine Folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at adamconover.net or at Adam Conover, wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week on Factually. Factually.